Welcome, one and all, to the Cool Worlds podcast with me, your host, David Kipping. So first off, it has been a little while since we posted our most recent podcast episode, and that's on me. I apologize for that. It has been a bit of a crazy couple of months. We had the holiday season, Christmas season, of course, which if you have young kids like me at home, you know that that is not going to be the most conducive audio environment for trying to make podcasts. So that's part of the excuse. And of course, when January came around, which is the start of semester here, start of semester, always a busy time teaching new classes, things like this. But on top of that, you know, my major work over, over January has been, frankly, been reading applications. Every year we admit new students to join our PhD program, just the PhD program. Of course, there's also the undergraduate program. But even the PhD program has been an enormous amount of work for me. We've had over 320 applications this year for what will probably only be like four or five students we eventually actually have join our PhD program here. That's kind of bizarre, right? The the odds are almost 100 to 1 at this point for admission into these programs. And this is a trend which is happening across the country in not just the major schools, but even the smaller schools in astronomy. So I'm kind of confused by that. It's interesting. Astronomy seems to be outpacing physics, STEM degrees, engineering degrees in terms of its attractiveness, its competitiveness. And it does mean that those top students that we're admitting they're, they're off the chart. They have multiple papers already, some of them. They are like captain of the tennis team. They won like chess tournaments in Russia. And they're, they're just kind of phenomenal students. And it's uh, it makes you think like, wow, um, how's this going to be in another 10 years from now at this rate? And would I have even got into graduate school given how outrageously competitive it has become? It does mean, on the other hand, that it has become uh, a lot more work for us on the other side. You know, to read all these applications and try and judge them. The top 50 of these applications are frankly all good enough that you could basically admit them without concern. But of course, that's too many. We can't possibly fund that many students. There's not enough research money in our department to do that. So we have to select down. And that process is really tough. And so that's what I've been doing. It's been, it's been a lot of work, um, but I feel good about the final class that we've admitted. And uh, hopefully that means with that out of the way, we can get back to making more videos and podcasts and things like that. So with that in mind, who's our new guest today? This week I have Dr. Viraj Pandya. So Dr. Viraj Pandya, he did his PhD at UC Santa Cruz, and he is now at Columbia. So he's just a couple of offices down. I think he's probably going to have the record for the, the smallest commute of any guest that we'll ever have on the podcast. He's literally just too, you can probably hear me talking right now, introducing him. Uh, so he's he's a Hubble Fellow, which is these very competitive national fellowships issued by NASA, and he's here, and he's working on galaxy formation, particularly the earliest galaxies in the universe. And what we're going to be talking about in today's episode is JWST, this incredible six and a half meter telescope, which is just revolutionizing our view of the early universe, but also true of the nearby universe of exoplanets. But in particular, you know, you've probably been seeing this in the news that JWST is kind of really shaking up how we think about how early galaxies formed and evolved, and in particular, their, their shapes and the timing at which they emerge. It all seems very surprising. So Viraj actually had his work highlighted in the New York Times quite recently, in January. In fact, he was on the front page. Well, not him, his face, but his work was on the front page of the New York Times, which is very rare. I mean, scientists don't appear on the front page of the New York Times too often. So 
that's pretty amazing and it's well deserved because the work he's been doing has been pretty uh pretty incredible in terms of the implications that it has for how we think about galaxies it's really shaking up the textbook as you'll hear about today so the title of his paper was galaxies gone bananas and i think as we get into the discussion today you will just see how profoundly uh, surprising the results are and how that that phrase is both true in a figurative and even a literal sense when you look at these galaxies they actually do kind of look a little bit bananas so we'll get into that today i hope you'll enjoy this discussion and i'll see you in the back end Viraj, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really exciting to get you into the Cool Worlds podcast, especially because you've been in the news recently. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much, David. It's great to be here. So obviously your work is on galaxies. Yep. And I thought just to set the scene for everybody at home so we can all be on the same page, yeah. why don't we start by talking a little bit about the canonical story mm -hmm. of galaxy formation. Now certainly, when I was uh, looking through the old classical textbooks of how galaxy formation was thought about, there are a lot of analogies to think about the solar system, actually. Yeah. The solar system has a coplanar disk. It's kind of two-dimensional. But in the center, you have a central mass. Yep. Everything goes around it. And that's kind of similar to the Milky Way. Yep. We have a disk. We have all these objects in orbit of it, essentially. Not perfectly circular orbits, but not too far off either. And in the middle, you have Sagittarius A-star, which is like 4 million solar masses and around that you have something like 100 billion stars in orbit so they seem like disks the universe wants to make disks yeah. so why what why are these disks coming from and how do we understand the population of modern galaxies that we see around us yeah that's a great great analogy to planet formation and star formation um so yeah the milky way is a disk and uh, you know, as you're alluding to, there's this there's this idea that the solar system was formed uh, out of a gas cloud, roughly spherical, right? The, the Laplace's nebular hypothesis, mm. uh, and it had initially very small amounts of you know net rotation, but as it collapsed due to the force of gravity, it uh, sped up, right? Because conservation of angular momentum, and it flattened into a disk. Mm. And so there's actually a very simple analogy straightforward to to galactic disk formation so the picture that we have in mind and that actually like my own models of galaxy formation currently uh, encapsulate is is very similarly the milky way at some point was formed out of a protogalactic gas cloud mm. that was roughly spherical ish in shape a uh, much larger scale like maybe a hundred times larger than the milky way today and it had small amounts of net rotation but then as it collapsed under the weight of its own gravity, uh, it started to speed up because of conservation of angular momentum, mm -hmm. and it formed this disk. Uh, so it's kind of like the pizza pie effect. Exactly. Right? You see someone spinning pizza, yeah, yeah. it spreads out. Exactly. Suddenly. In fact, yeah. the, the analogy that I've been using you know, with, this new, with this new work is I say, when you look out into the local universe, like Hubble did 100 years ago, mm -hmm. right? you see galaxies that look like pizza pies right? Discs. Mm -hmm. You see galaxies that look like balls of dough, perfectly round balls of dough in 3D. These are the elliptical galaxies. Uh, and those are really the two main types that we see nearby. Then you have some kind of a mixture of those two where you have like a dough ball at the center of a 
pizza pies, like a bulge at the center of the disc like we have for the Milky Way. Okay. Yeah. Now, the ellipticals then, they don't follow this story. And I have to say, the, the, the name elliptical seems like a misnomer, right? Yeah. Because if they're just these kind of quasi-spheroids, yeah. it, it's like so many things in astronomy, like planetary nebulae. Yeah. Like, why do we call it that? It's yeah. just a historical hangover, and we're all kind of stuck with this silly yeah. name. But ellipticals, um, yeah, maybe you can explain why why are they called ellipticals, yeah. and where they don't fit into this story of yeah. Laplace, nebula, spinning, pizza pie. So where, where do they come from? Yeah, so that's another great point. So ellipticals, yeah, Hubble, Hubble came up with this terminology. And part of the reason for this is that he saw that for some of the most, the, the brightest nearby galaxies that he cataloged 100 years ago, um, there was a substantial fraction of galaxies that appeared uh, rounder, like relatively round or circular in projection, uh, many more in excess than you would than you would expect if you just had a bunch of pizzas that you were looking at in space randomly oriented. Mm. Um, so you, in that case, you would see you know roughly equal numbers of pizzas face on and roughly equal numbers of pizzas edge on and, and in between. But he saw many more rounder things. So he, he hypothesized that there must be an intrinsically round, you know, spheroidal class of galaxies, the ellipticals, that um, you know would preferentially appear round. Now. The ellipticals still also appear, can appear uh, elliptical in projection, right? They can appear heavily flattened mm. uh, because there are some ellipticals that are heavily flattened. And it wasn't until, you know, 80, 90 years after Hubble's 1926 Astrophysical Journal article that we really started to get constraints on the orbits of the stars in these elliptical galaxies. And we found that the stars in these elliptical galaxies are on kind of random orbits, mm. kind of just all in many different directions. Whereas, as you said, for disk galaxies like the Milky Way, the stars are on circular orbits and like a plane, more or less. So uh, these, these kind of look more like, uh, they're not perfect spheres, obviously, then, that's right. if you sometimes see them elliptical. Yeah. So is it more like an American football or a rugby ball, then you kind of get this kind of prolate spheroid? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so some of them are, are relatively prolate. Um, we now know that the most massive, the brightest ellipticals nearby, they truly are relatively like round uh, mm. in 3D. And then as you go to like some of the lower mass ellipticals, uh, maybe like a factor of five to 10 more massive than our own galaxy, these we think are an extension of these football-shaped things. The, we call the S zeros of the lenticular galaxies, which are mm. like these uh, bulges within disks. Okay. Um, now, how do these ellipticals form? So that's still you know debated. But the to connect back to the nebular hypothesis, you know the the standard story is the first things to form galactic structures are these disks because they form out of these collapsing gas clouds that spin up and flatten out. And then these you can have disks that merge with each other. And when they merge with each other, they can destroy, you know, some of the disk structure in the progenitor galaxies and you end up with this uh, remnant that um, is going to have some amount of bulge growth, some mm. amount of this central, you know, concentration of mass where some of the stars are on these you know, relatively um, uh, random uh, velocities, yeah. orbits. Uh, and and how exactly, you know, what the remnant looks like, what fraction of the remnant in terms of mass or size or light is going to be in this bulge, this like little elliptical thing, mm. the center versus what is in the extended disk, that really depends on the properties of the progenitors, like how much gas was there in the progenitors. 
um, which can then fuel like subsequent star formation in a disk or at the center as well. But um, as a proxy, then the a, a, a nascent first generation galaxy would have very little bulge. Yeah. But then the more mergers, the larger the bulge, until eventually that bulge essentially swells. And it becomes what we'd normally call an elliptical galaxy. Is that kind of the picture? Or at least yeah, canonically? That's, that's the canonical yeah. picture, yeah, yeah, where mergers cause the growth of bulges. And eventually when you have mergers of lots and lots of mergers in the history of a galaxy, then you've kind of destroyed, you know, the possibility for it to have these stars in these nice circular orbits. And you end up with this roughly kind of bulge-dominated you know, in the case of ellipticals, pure bulge systems. Yeah. Now, there's some nuances here because there are other ways to form bulges, like instabilities in the underlying disk um, due to gravitational effects and um, things like that. But I have to say as an aside, I mean, galaxies is uh, obviously a little bit different to exoplanets, but I've always found it fascinating. And the thought that there are these trillion star galaxies out there, or even more than that, these yeah. these massive ellipticals. Yeah. And there's also tiny, tiny galaxies that are in orbit of the Milky Way, of course, like the yeah. Large Magellanic Cloud. And it makes you wonder about what it would be like to be born in these different galaxies and whether life or civilizations happen differently in these different circumstances. Yeah. And it was what what kind of got you interested in this subject? Was it something sci-fi like that or is it just more the the hard science of the of their underpinnings and their origins? So it's definitely the latter. I mean it's it's well it's all of all of the above. But for yeah. me, you know, I really want to answer this question, uh, how did we get here? And NASA actually has two programs that are designed to try to answer the same question. One is the Cosmic Origins Division, mm -hmm. headquartered at Goddard. Um, and uh, the other is this program called the Hubble Fellowship uh, Postdoctoral Program, which is, so I'm a Hubble Fellow here. And and um, so the research that I do tries to get at this question of how do we get here? And so part of that for me is figuring out we have the galaxy, the Milky Way today that we live in, and what did it look like you know, 10 billion years ago? And, and, you know, what were the conditions of the Milky Way when, say, for example, the solar system formed, mm. right, uh, five billion years yeah. ago or so? And then you, where do we come from? And yeah, just to put a pit on that, yeah. you've come two you've come two offices down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. you are you are you, the record for the shortest commute podcast yeah. guest we've yeah. ever had. Yeah. But maybe that'll be a record that will be broken one day. I don't know, but yeah. that's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but I, am, I guess I am curious just to push back on that a little bit more. Like, yeah. surely as a child, you were not thinking. Oh, NASA! NASA have like got this section in their horizons <laughs> that really cares. Well, yeah. That can't have been your inspiration. No, like, no. what? I mean, maybe it makes sense that you know there's a whole field that's and it feels exciting because there's so much research happening in that area now as a mature yeah. scientist. But did you discover then your love for galaxies later, or was was there an interest earlier on? Yeah. So actually, my discovery of astronomy as a science was way later on, actually near the end of undergrad. Mm -hmm. So my degree, my bachelor's degree from Rutgers um, is actually in economics and math. Okay. Uh, and halfway through undergrad, you know, I was taking my econ courses and some math courses, and I just randomly discovered Carl Sagan mm. on YouTube. Uh, watching hole. Yeah. Pale Blue Dot and Cosmos Clips and Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Bill Nye. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, there's this entire science of astronomy. And, and I remember thinking, you know, there's like all these things happening in the world that still happen today, wars and things like that. And, mm. and 
wow, you know, with astronomy, we can really focus on things that are at a higher level. Maybe, you know, it's a, it's a path to peace at some point, mm. convince people in the world that, that, uh, there's other stuff to think about. Bigger perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I started the Rutgers Astro Astronomical Society um, because there was no astronomy club at the State University of New yeah. Jersey. Wow. Uh, and through that, I got to meet professors of astronomy at Rutgers, Saurabh so Jha, Rachel Somerville, Tad Pryor, and others. And through that, through them, I actually got involved in research in astronomy before I'd taken any under, like the basic physics courses. Huh. So I was studying, you know, how galaxies change their shapes and colors before I had any idea what angular momentum was, right? Uh, and um, that actually, I think, helped me kind of stay in the field and kind of push push through because, you know, I think there are a lot of things that academia does great, mm -hmm. but one of the things is that, um, you know, this this process of, of trying to learn and, and hone your creativity and passion for a field, you know, you go through like the usual courses, uh, they can really beat that excitement out of you. Mm. Um, and so I'm glad I got to do research before taking classes and I got lucky. I went to Princeton as one of the first bridge students there, um, for the program that for people that wanted to switch from something else to astronomy. Mm. And so in my case from econ to, yeah, to astro and, uh, really more of the same there, you know, I just did a lot of research. I took the classes that I needed on my transcript and then applied to grad school, um, what did but, your parents say to that switching from? Because econ is like yeah, a standard, like, I know. there's my a, parents there's a like, good paycheck at the end of this yeah, one, I'm like, going to go to astronomy. This yeah. guy, just like, yeah, like, <laughs> why? What are you doing? Like, yeah, I mean, even, you know, even even a little bit to, to this day, like, you mm -hmm. know, uh, been on the front page of the New York Times, but it's still like, well, okay, <laughs> when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> Yeah, well, there's time for that down the road. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I kind of feel the same way about research. I, I think when I was an undergraduate taking classes, I didn't do it quite reverse like you did. Um, I was more kind of conventional that I always did love astronomy. Yeah. But I think my love for astronomy almost waned when I was taking some classes mm. just because it was so theoretical and hypothetical almost and abstract. Um, it came, I did mine at Cambridge, and we didn't want stocks with a telescope at Cambridge. It's just that's oh, really? not part of the program at all. So it's very, very like disconnected almost. It's just yeah. the math, which is enjoyable, but not. It's not the same. Um, and it was only when I did research that, yeah, I think it's uh, a transformative experience. So uh, that's when I discovered this is this is what I want to do. So it seems like yeah. a good lesson then for people who are thinking of astronomy. Yeah. But just to try a research project. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think the best way to learn something is to get your hands dirty and really, you know, build something. In this case, for astronomy, a lot of what we do is we build we build, we build, build code infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. To like analyze some catalogs or analyze some images. Um, you can also, there's, you know, instrumentation projects that you can get your hands dirty with or pencil and paper theory and things like that. So, yeah. So let's, uh, from a little segue into the origins of us as astronomers, yeah. the origins of galaxies. Let's yeah. come back to that. Yeah. Um, so we had this, we have this picture that seems, it's so, so often, it's also true in exoplanets as well, that we really thought everything was wrapped up. Mm -hmm. We thought we understood everything from this simple nebula hypothesis, and we were pretty sure every planetary system would look just like our own planetary system. And then when you look around, things look different. In the local universe, maybe things don't look too different, but as you look further and further away, of course, you're looking back in time. And there was this survey that Hubble did 
uh, called CANDLES, and I had to look at what this stands for. It's the Cosmic Assembly Near-Infrared Deep Extragalactic Legacy Survey. Just just yes, rolls off the tongue. That's candles. right. Yeah. <laughs> candles spelled incorrectly, yeah. <laughs> It doesn't even make sense. But in in infrared, yeah, anyway. So this happened around 2011. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were looking at redshifts between 1.5 and 8. And that's really a measure of how far back in time you're going. So using my cosmic calculator, that turns to about 600 million years for the age of the universe at the youngest end to about 4.3 billion years. So we're not in the... Uh, the very earliest stages, but the part where we really would expect galaxies to have formed by this point. Mm-hmm. And so Candles uh, was a really historic survey, and it, it led to some surprises in terms of the shapes. Now, maybe this is a good uh, preview for what you're going to talk about with the J- James Webb. What did Hubble find that already kind of teed this up a little bit? Yeah, so... so- Candles actually, so yeah, you're right. It was one of the largest programs ever undertaken with the Hubble Space Telescope. Almost a thousand orbits dedicated just to this one treasury program. Um, And it really, you know, we always hear about the Hubble Deep Field. Mm. But Candles was the program that expanded that to five deep fields. Mm. So there's five fields, very tiny, a fraction of the full moon on the sky, on different parts of the sky, where astronomers, you know, pointed the Hubble Space Telescope and got you know, two months worth of observing time mm. on. And um, one of the things that they found is for galaxies that were blue, that were forming stars uh, that existed about 10 billion years ago, so wretched about two, mm-hmm. um, where the stellar masses of these things were about a factor of 10 lower than the Milky Way stellar mass today, so the total mass in stars. Mm. So AK, for galaxies that were Milky Way ancestors, candles found that there were many of them that looked elongated. They looked like linear, clumpy structures projected on the sky. Mm. And actually, this was um, building on work that was done in the mid-90s. So there were astronomers in the mid-90s, like Sidney Vandenberg, Lennox Cowie, Bob Williams, and many others, that started to plan the very first Hubble Deep Fields, the proto-Hubble Deep Fields. Mm. And back in the 90s, they were using instruments on Hubble that um, looked at ultraviolet or optical parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. And so when you're looking at galaxies that existed 10 billion years ago, the light from them that is now reaching you, um, originally when it was emitted, it was emitted by like the parts of these galaxies where stars were forming, new stars are forming. Mm. So you're getting some biased view of these early galaxies. And they too found that galaxies appeared linear. Mm. And um, and so with the candle survey, you know, it used the wide field camera three, a relatively new instrument that was installed in 2009, I believe. Yeah, I think Mike Massimino, who's faculty here. Oh, yeah. In engineering actually was one of the astronauts who installed it. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 And so that that instrument looks at near infrared wavelengths. Mm-hmm. And so it can capture the light emitted from these distant galaxies that was emitted by the bulk of their older stars, not just like the young, blue, biased star population. Right. And even at these redder wavelengths, where you're seeing the bulk of the body of the galaxies at these early times, they, there were also lots and lots of elongated ones. Mm. And so... And did they believe that? Or did they think it was a... 
um, some kind of perspective effect, geometry effect, or something, a bias? What did they think yeah. at the time? So there's really kind of two camps of astronomers, mm. even to this day. Yeah. So there's one camp which, you know, rightly says, well, let's take the safest approach. I think, uh, you know, we think that there's some kind of bias. So, you know, people have shown that in the local universe, there are extremely faint and thin disk galaxies. They call them low surface brightness disks. Mm -hmm. And we see them in various orientations. So you see, you know, lots of ones edge on, you see lots of ones face on, and you see them in between, different orientations in between. Why are they so dim? Just far away or just few stars? What's going few on? Few stars and also okay. very large sizes. Okay. Um, yeah. Just very diffuse. Yeah, they're yeah. Yeah, very okay. diffuse, exactly. Um, and so the idea was, well, you're seeing lots and lots of these elongated looking galaxies in the distant universe mm. because the edge on ones are the ones that you're seeing preferentially. They're the ones where the light is concentrated to this plane. It's relatively bright. Mm. Uh, and so they're easier to detect in your survey and your Hubble imaging. Right. Uh, and you're just not seeing the rounder ones, right? The deficit of rounder ones is because when when you see one of these things face on, the light is more spread out. And so, so they're all they're all the same shape in this picture, right? They're all yeah. basically discs. Yeah. But the ones that are face on to you, the num the number of stars per pixel yeah. is essentially just too low to yeah. be detected. But if you put that edge on, now you're seeing along the columns you get all of those stars in one pixel, so suddenly this thing pops up and you can get a nice image of it. Exactly. So that that was the I the hypothesis. That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay. And and that makes sense, right? I mean you you want to try to explain your observations in, in, in a way that is kind of consistent with, you know, your current understanding, you know, of, yeah. of galaxy formation in this context. Uh, so that's one side of the argument, right? There's like some kind of detection bias, some, we call them a surface brightness selection effect. Mm -hmm. You're just not sensitive to the face-on faint ones, mm. and you're seeing lots of the edge-on ones. The other side of the argument, which is what actually the Candles team proposed, led by Aryan Vanderwell in a 2014 paper, my colleague, uh, is no, there actually is some intrinsic 3D geometrical evolution in the sense that you're seeing lots and lots of the edge-on ones because these galaxies intrinsically are flattened along a second axis. So they really are not all just, you know, circular disks like the Milky Way, for example. Mm. Um, so you've squished the Milky Way yeah. in another dimension. Yeah. So I, I think I've used, seen the word pickle. Yes, yeah, pickle time. is one. My the other, yeah. I mean, we're in New York City, so my other analogy that I use, you know, I said, I started in the beginning. I said, balls of dough are ellipticals. Yeah. You take a ball of dough, flatten it along one dimension, you get the greatest thing in the universe. Pizza. Pizza. Yeah. Now take a pizza, flatten it along one of the two other two axes, you get my other favorite thing in the entire universe. Baguette. A baguette. Oh, yes. nice. Yeah, there we go. exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of French, so I wasn't expecting that to yeah. New York connection. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I say breadstick, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all food related. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good. Um, so, the, but yeah, that makes sense. So, um, but very peculiar, I suppose, because that doesn't fit. At least with the ellipticals and the discs, you're like, that's okay because we can make the ellipticals from the discs. But yeah. these pickles, these baguettes, that that's like literally who ordered that yeah <laughs> to, literally to yeah it's a brand new class of you know galaxies okay. right with and we don't see these things in local i mean in extreme environments like huge clusters of galaxies which are like the new york cities of the you know yeah. galaxies where they all congregate um you might see these pickle shaped things but that's because they've been tidally kind of uh disturbed mm. by interactions with other systems usually 
But and we also just still we don't observe them in such large numbers as we, as 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 candles suggested back then. So there was you know a lot of kind of um, I'm not even sure I want to say pushback, but it was just uh, like we just don't talk about it. Mm. We don't. Just we not don't, sure what to make of it. Yeah, we just yeah. we don't talk about it. I mean, you know, it's uh, and and there's different techniques, right? The, the te- techniques that are used to to come at this result that okay early galaxies may have started out shaped like breadsticks or pickles or to throw something else in cigars <laughs> um, that technique is fundamentally different from the techniques that we use to you know by eye classify galaxies like you know by eye i can say okay this thing looks like a disc um, or i can look for you know you can measure the intensity of light and how fast it falls off from the center of the galaxy mm-hmm. and for disks in the local universe and many, you know, at higher redshifts that we've observed that we think really are disks because we've observed like the motions of stars in them, um, the, the light falls off exponentially with radius. Hmm. That's a necessary but not sufficient condition for, uh, you know, saying something is definitely a disk hmm. because it turns out that a lot of these pickle shaped things, they, their light also can fall off exponentially okay. in projection. Okay. Um, so you need something else and I have something in mind, Okay. but we can come so back to that later. Let's come back to that. Yeah. Um, before we get into JWST, because obviously Hubble is a 2.4 meter class telescope yeah. and JWST is 6.5. So I think that's the immediate question is what does this much more powerful telescope give? But yeah. maybe we can just set the scene um, about the state of the universe at this time. Like what was what was different? What should people keep in mind about the early universe versus how we think about the modern universe? What were the conditions like? Yeah, so great question. So in the early universe, um, the conditions were dramatically different. So, you know, um, you have the densities of like the intergalactic medium Mm. uh, and even the interstellar medium, the densities overall are just much higher because the universe, you know, has not expanded to the state that it's in today. Um, so you have much higher densities um, within and around galaxies. You also have much, and as a result, relatedly, you have a much tighter, denser cosmic web of dark matter, the, which forms mm. the skeletal backbone of the universe, right? These like filaments of dark matter, which eventually kind of intersect at nodes, uh, which is where the clusters of galaxies will eventually form. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, it depends what exact epic you're looking at but at very early times the universe you know we call it like it say it's in the dark ages mm-hmm. because this, a lot of the stars haven't formed yet and the stars are the and the black holes that are accreting they're the you know they're the machines that generate this prodigious amount of light that then can blow holes and ionize this intergalactic medium and then at slightly lower redshifts you know we call it the cosmic noon redshift two when we think for the example the milky way reached its peak rate at which it was forming stars new stars Mm. and so if you're forming so many stars at cosmic noon then this is the epoch right after the dark ages where you know there's just lots and lots of ionizing radiation photons light Mm. just traversing the universe um and and that can affect the kind of structures that can form and do these stars are obviously forming from uh, more pristine gas than we have today which has been contaminated with metals and enriched elements that's right. but 
I assume we're not at the point where we have population of three stars in your galaxies. You're probably past that point. Yeah, we're, so we're past that. Yeah. The, get the stars that you're seeing are intrinsically familiar-ish to the yeah. types of stars that we have today. Yeah. Okay. yeah, exactly. They're like the earlier progenitors of like the modern population one and two stars. And so you said that the bluer maybe, and that, that blueness is just because of the um, the fact they're younger means if there is a a, a more massive star that forms it will be bluer that's right uh, because it's hotter yeah. and therefore those stars are still around but as you that's go right. forward in time those stars die off and so that's you right. get an overall redder and redder galaxy yeah and you just have lots and lots of star formation so you have lots and lots of these young hot blue stars uh, that can outshine the older um, less dominant you know redder Mm. star population and does that make it difficult to pin down the redshift then because when you're pinning down the redshift of a star of a galaxy that's all it's about its color yeah. if these galaxies are intrinsically bluer anyway yeah could that i mean you need to somehow account for that you would think in yeah. your distance measurement how, yeah. how do you guys deal with the precise redshift measurements yeah that's a really good point so most of these galaxies um the redshifts come from you know, we have like 20 to 40 band photometry, which is essentially what is the flux, how bright is this galaxy mm -hmm. uh, across a huge part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, and when you measure that out, the brightness is a function of wavelength or frequency, uh, you get a particular shape. We call this a spectral energy distribution. Mm -hmm. And then you compare that observed shape for the brightness of this galaxy at different wavelengths to a huge library of templates of galaxies where you know we think we know their their uh, their internal stellar populations how will that manifest in some different shape for the observed spectral energy distribution so okay. in essence uh, you know for our galaxies uh, we're not in the pop 3 regime you know we're pretty confident in the we call it the photometric redshift uh, and the typical like estimate that we have for the total mass and stars. Um, yeah, I should say for the, if we use pop three, maybe we use it too nonchalantly there. Yeah. That's they, those are the very first stars yeah. that form the universe, which there's, there are people with JWST hoping to find those yeah. as well, but almost a separate topic, to That's be right. honest. Um, yeah. So in that sense, you've uh, and all the, this 20 band data, this is all from a case in the ca case of candles, that would all be from the Hubble Wide Field Camera 3. So that's all near-infrared That's right. Data. Well, and as well as some UV, because you have the advanced camera for surveys, ACS. Okay. And the WIFC-3 also actually goes into the UV. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, there's a UVIS yeah, channel. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I, exoplanet people use it all the time, but it's uh, it's mostly used for near-infrared. Yeah, so yeah. near-infrared is where it's... Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So let's leave Hubble and yeah. and go into the JWST world. Yeah. Um, so just like candles, there has been another survey with JWST. Again, a nice acronym here. So it's called SEERS. Yes. Am I saying that right? Or KEERS? SEERS. 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 Kind of reminds me of the, um, isn't it like a furniture store in the US yeah. called SEERS yes. or something? Yes, I used to or go to as a kid. Store. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So... I'm a Brit, so I don't know all these 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 yeah. stories. Spelled anyway. a little differently, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is the the Cosmic Evolution Early Release Science Survey. That's right. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that survey. What what's it doing? What distinguishes it from candles? Yeah. So uh, Sears. So the PI of Sears is Steve Finkelstein. He's a professor at UT Austin, who I know very well because when I was a grad student at the University of California Santa Cruz, as a first year grad student. 
the PI, the co-PI of Candle, Sandy Faber, famous for the Faber-Jackson mm. relationship for elliptical galaxies, um, she um, arranged for me to shadow Steve okay. as he was when he was chosen and as he was then uh, putting together the Sears collaboration, which was actually like a follow-on from Candles. Um, so you know there were all these people. Candles is like a multi-hundred-person collaboration, mm. and so you have all this expertise, and people wanted to use that expertise, you know, retain it, use it to then plan the new generation of surveys with. with with James Webb. And back in 2016, 2017, NASA put out a call for early release science proposals, where the idea was about 10 teams would get chosen to become, you know, some of the first teams to get data from James Webb. And on a very quick turnaround time, uh, process the data, maybe show and release code for the community to show them, you know, what problems that they run into, and, and, and finally provide, you know, reduced processed imaging, data, catalogs for the community to do science. Mm. Um, so Sears was chosen as one of these teams. I, it, was, it was very cool to see Steve put this, put this together and then lead it, uh, you know, in the six years it would take to finally get the data, yeah. right, in 2021. We yeah. finally got our observations. Of course, because of all the delays. People were That's hoping right. it wouldn't be yeah. that long. It was supposed yeah. to be in 2018 when I was in grad school. And then it eventually became yeah, yeah. 2021 and then 2022 when we finally got the data. So anyway, Sears, yeah, it's um, comprised of a lot of people from Candles. Um, and what it's doing is I mentioned Candles surveyed five deep fields. Mm-hmm. One of these five deep fields called the Extended Growth Strip is... Extended what, sorry? Extended Growth Groth? Yeah, <laughs> named after Ed Groth. Yeah, oh, Professor okay. at Princeton. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, EGS is what we just call it in, okay. in short. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so so this is a long rectangular field that is right next to the Big Dipper on the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Sears targeted e- Aegis, e- EGS, um, roughly half of, of, of the extended Groth strip uh, to get multi-band imaging and spectroscopy over roughly half of this long rectangular field. Uh, and so we got data in like six or seven different filters with NearCam. We got data with the redder instrument called uh, MIRI. Mm. Um, and then we use these instruments in parallel and with different different observing modes to get spectra and, and imaging. Um, so it's a smaller it's a smaller patch of the sky. It's a smaller patch than of the candles sky. because yeah. it's the early release. It's like exactly we're just doing sh- little shakedown thing. Yeah, here. it's like a yeah. proof of concept. Like yeah. you know how mm-hmm. what can what can web really do? Yeah. So uh, and then the crazy thing is, so candles as I mentioned, you know it's the deepest survey, so a thousand orbits on Hubble, and in some of these fields, you know you're, you're kind of staring at the same patch of sky for several tens of hours to maybe days. Mm. Uh, and so when the first web data from Sears came in, you know, we were staring at this data and it was amazing because Sears, you know, these, the field of view of JWST and Hubble is much smaller than the size of the, these little, like the Hubble deep field or or these Mm -hmm. aegis in this case. Um, so you have to tile multiple observations together to get a mosaic and any individual tile of this mosaic, Sears only observed for less than an hour with Mm -hmm. web. But the images that I, that I got in ten times less observing time were just blew the Hubble imaging from candles out of the water. 
Like wow. you could see so much more substructure in the same galaxies that Hubble observed where it just looked like a noisy splotch. Yeah. And here you see like this nice kind of, you know, like underlying low surface brightness extended components around galaxies and stuff. So this this is great because this is the kind of data that we need, right? To answer mm. this question back, going back to the puzzle of like, well, did Hubble, was Hubble just missing all of these face on you know, low surface brightness disks because it wasn't sensitive enough? Um, or was it actually, you know, did Hubble find something? Yeah, and of course that that's just a nice um, kind of prelude to what might come because as you said, this is 10 times less yeah. observing time yeah. than what Hubble spent. Yeah. By the way, one orbit of Hubble is 90 minutes, right? So that's like, right. There's a thousand hours, that's 50, a thousand orbits is 1500 hours roughly. Yeah. Um, and JWST can also observe uh, I think it's true, like it collects more data per unit time than Hubble because it doesn't orbit the Earth. And so That's right. you don't get these blackouts when you're behind the That's Earth right. or something. Yeah. So, yeah, the potential then is really exciting. Of course, people are talking about JWST could last for like 20 years or something. Yeah. So I just it blows my mind, that, you know, just trying to think of like a JWST deep field compared to like a Hubble deep field. Like, yeah, wow. that, that's something to hang up on, yeah. on this wall when we get one of those, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, your work with this survey, with Sears. Yeah. And you, as I said, you're on the New York Times yes. on January the 5th. Yeah. I was kind of, I should have asked you to bring it in. And, yeah, and yeah, have, we're on a podcast, so probably the listeners wouldn't care anyway. Yeah. But yeah, it was pretty amazing because to get, I don't think people realize this, but to get your science covered in the New York Times or any major newspaper, is rare, extremely yeah. rare, to get it on the front I know. cover. The front page is yeah. bizarre. Um, yeah, I think you told me a lot of story about how you discovered that and you weren't expecting it to, to. Maybe we could just recap that before we get into the science. Like, how yeah. did you find out you were on the front cover? Yeah, so um, so so it's it's so Professor David Helfand here at Columbia um, introduced me to Dennis Overby when he when I told him that I had written this nice paper. Uh, and so, um, you know, I described the science to Dennis and he seemed very interested and convinced this is, you know, this is worthwhile, maybe worth kind of writing about. Uh, and then, you know, communication with Dennis was sporadic for a few months. I met with him like in October mm. of last year. We submitted the paper in September. Yeah. And then I get an email from Dennis. Uh, I'm in California. I get an email from Dennis, like, the day before I'm flying to AAS, the American Astronomical Society's annual conference in mm. New Orleans. Uh, so he's like, they want to run the story today. And um, he had CC'd his two editors, senior editors. And I had no idea that he was actually, he had written a story, much less, you know, pitched it to his editors. Mm. And I had not seen the story. In fact, I would not end up seeing the story until it became public. <laughs> um, so luckily, Dennis did a great job. Um, yeah. But not luckily, he's actually, he's, he's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I'm at the airport Saturday morning, as I was telling you, uh, getting ready to fly to New Orleans. I'm looking for the New York Times. I pick up a copy. And Dennis said it might be in print Saturday, Sunday, or Tuesday. So I pick it up, you know, and I'm like flipping through the headers of the inside pages. Like, where's the science section? And I yeah. didn't see a science section. Right. So I'm like, okay, maybe it's not today. And then I start to put it down, but I flip the front page upside down. It turns out there's a beautiful collage of galaxies there. Yeah. That's the image that I sent to his editors. Like wow. this might be worth including with, with yeah, the story. There it is. And it's in color. And it says the early universe may have gone bananas. <laughs> That's uh, it's a great headline as well, I have to say. So yeah. it definitely catches people's attention. Yeah. And 
Bana- yeah, so we it's another it's another food. We've got <laughs> yes. baguettes, pickles, yeah. um, and uh, pizza pies, yeah. pizza bordeaux, and yeah. now we've got bananas. Yeah. So yeah, why don't you tell us what what did you see? Where are the bananas coming in here? Yeah, so the bananas. So I worked closely with several people in Sears and outside of Sears for this paper, um, and a few of them are Hawen Zhang, a finishing graduate at the University of Arizona, who I also worked with um, on some candles projects a few years ago, Santa Cruz, as well as Karthik Iyer, who's another Hubble fellow here at Columbia, Mark Weir's company, Liz McGrath, Steve, and others. And so we were in my office just two doors down here, mm. and we plotted, um, you know, we took we took galaxies that um, were at redshift two, and that have that had a total mass in stars that were a factor of ten lower than the Milky Way today. So we think these were galaxies that were Milky Way progenitors, okay. ancestors of our own Milky Way-like galaxies, ten billion years ago. And we plotted their, we we measured their projected axis ratios. So if you fit every galaxy on the sky with you know, an ellipse, you can characterize an ellipse by the ratio of the short axis, B, divided by the long axis, A. Mm-hmm. Kind of like when you're looking for a TV, you, know, you look, look at the aspect ratio. Yeah. Um, and so you measure that for a bunch of galaxies, all these Milky Way progenitors, and you plot that on the Y axis. Mm-hmm. Of a of a of a plot. So that's the rate. That's the aspect ratio. That's the aspect ratio. Okay. So short axis to long axis on the y axis. Okay. A lot of axes. A lot of axes. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> aspect ratio on the y axis of a plot, and then on uh-huh. the x axis you plot how big, like how big is the the ellipse. So the sizes of these galaxies. Okay. And when you make that plot for these Milky Way progenitors, it actually traces out a curved trajectory. In the sense that as you go to larger size galaxies towards the right on the x-axis mm-hmm. of sizes, galaxies are preferentially showing up towards the bottom of this diagram. So they're preferentially showing up with elongated or edge-on or flat or linear shapes. So the bigger they are, the more pickly they are. Yeah, exactly. That's weird. Yeah. And so when we made this figure with a particular color map choice, right? The, the higher density parts of this figure where all the galaxies were clustered in this diagram, um, it reminded us of the shape of a banana. And so that was the inspiration for the title of the paper, Galaxies Going Bananas, that in this diagram of aspect ratio versus size, yeah. these Milky Way progenitors 10 billion years ago are tracing out a banana in the sense that the larger size, one, size ones are preferentially have lower yeah. axis ratios. So it's not, that, yeah, I think that's a good point to clarify. It's not that the galaxies, the galaxies themselves yeah. are banana shaped, yeah. but that in this high dimensional view of yeah. them that you're looking at, yeah. then you get this still very strange yeah. banana shaped. Yeah. A few of them do look a little curved, but but there's probably a reflection of some other thing. And that's really odd because I think you would expect, okay, even if things were pickly, pickle shaped at one point, yeah. presumably, they have to get to a Milky Way shape yeah. at, some, at yeah. some point in the future. Yeah. So you would maybe naively expect a convergence towards in the deep past, for some reason they're pickle-shaped, then they go through the disc-shaped, and that's kind of where they end up. But if, if they're getting bigger and more elongated, yeah. that's yeah. Well, it's totally good counterintuitive. To, that's, a, that's a very good point, actually. It is counterintuitive, and, and actually this connects to an exciting interdisciplinary area of galaxy formation known as galactic archaeology. So I've talked to people here at Columbia, including, for example, Catherine Johnston, professor here, and Emmeline Cunningham, another Hubble fellow. And they're archaeologists, 
And when I go talk to them about these results, they want to know, okay, how big were these pickles? Yeah. You know, I say that they're big, right? But really, in the early universe, things were denser, right? And kind of still kind of galaxies were still growing. So these pickles in the early universe, in terms of, you know, technical terminology, they were of order one to two kiloparsecs. Um, and okay. today at, in the Milky Way, you know, we are eight kiloparsecs away from the center of our own galaxy. So if these pickles survived or whatever, you know, they ended up at the centers of the Milky Way like systems today. Yeah. Um, so they got absorbed then into they got the absorbed. Um, I mean, there's there, we, we do see some of these galaxies, these elongated pickle shaped galaxies in some cosmological simulations. So these are simulations where you're trying to like model everything in the universe, starting mm -hmm. with like the initial conditions of, you know, the initial fluctuations in the density field of dark matter and baryons and so on, and kind of let, let it evolve under the influence of gravity with some recipes, as we call them, another food <laughs> food yeah. analogy for like how do stars form and how does gas cool. You guys love your food. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We so, need to get our lunch before we start doing <laughs> our research. It's yeah. just a, like a very passive aggressive way of saying give galaxy people more food. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, uh, by the way, we had Catherine on the podcast, so yeah. anyone listening, you should, if you've not seen that episode, please do check it out. Um, and we get all, all into the anatomy of, yeah. of galaxies, which reminds me about bars. And, yes. And that's an obvious connection. So in the, in the center of some galaxies, there are these linear-like structures, which yeah. are called bars. Yeah. And that seems like a pickle. Yeah. Is that the connection then? At least maybe that's the connection you're hypothesizing that they might end up as the bars of galaxies. Yeah. So I, I say this always, yeah, to whenever I'm giving talks about this to scientists and astronomers. So you can call these early things bars mm. because, yeah, we do see like these, you know, pickle shaped things locally. They're called bars. But in the local universe, these bars are found generally in massive disks, mm. disks of stars where the stars are dominating the gravitational potential. And so the stars in the disk can undergo these instabilities, dynamical instabilities that then funnel them into this bar-shaped pattern. But when we look at these early galaxies that just look like linear structures in the sky, we don't really see you know, any evidence usually of a bright, AKA massive underlying stellar disk mm. out of which a bar could be forming. So the way these bars are forming in the early universe has to be probably very different from these like what we call secular uh isolated bar you know inst instabilities that happen mm. in massive disks at, at in the nearby universe uh, and there are ways to form these things so some of these simulations that i mentioned were that predict the existence of these elongated galaxies another way to form these things is uh to have mergers of galaxies along a preferential direction Mm -hmm. So going back to the cosmic web connection, right? So galaxies form in the cosmic web, the skeletal backbone of the universe, and galaxies that we think are the progenitors of the Milky Way at these, you know, um, distances and look back times 10 billion years ago, they're like the characteristic, you know, lower mass systems. They form in filaments, mm. filaments of dark matter. And... It turns out from some of these simulations, these galaxies live in dark matter halos. And unlike the relatively roundish dark matter halo that the Milky Way lives in today, 
we think that these pickle-shaped galaxies, they lived in pickle-shaped dark matter halos. So the halos were also mm. prolate ellipsoids. This has been known for at least 20 years where, you know, the first, you know, lower mass, higher redshift, early forming halos tend to be more prolate because they're forming by accreting dark matter via mergers mm. along a preferential direction dictated by the filament that they live in. Okay. Um, and so this is very exciting because this actually has cosmological implications and and it provides a new observable way to test this whole scenario. So I wrote a paper in 2019 with Joel Premack and Sandy Faber mm. and Avishai Dekel and Hawan Zhang and others suggesting that if this story is true, that the nebular hypothesis does not does not apply at, you know, in the early universe. Mm. Instead, the dark matter filaments are exerting their influence on galaxy formation. And that's why we're seeing all these elongated systems that actually we should expect to see on the sky strong intrinsic alignment signals in the sense that these in, that these galaxies should not just be randomly oriented on the sky, these mm -hmm. elongated ones. They should point towards one another on the sky. Yeah, like iron filings or something. Yeah, the, exactly. The magnet, yeah. Yeah, and they're tracing out filaments, the filaments in which they form over huge scales. Wow. And so this is very hard to do with like Hubble candle imaging, candles imaging, or with even with James Webb. Because the field of view of these telescopes is so small that even if you stack a bunch of or tile a bunch of pointings, you're covering a fraction of the full moon. Yeah. But this is going to, I think, make a huge comeback. I'm hoping, I'm trying to make it a come, have, it, have it make a comeback in 2027 with the Roman Space Telescope. Mm. Because that, in a single pointing, it's going to observe 100 Hubble deep fields at once. And it'll be able to resolve these things, be sensitive to them. Uh, over these huge areas. Oh. And so you can really start to redo my 2019 paper much more properly. With way more statistics. With way more yeah. statistics and, and actually like, yeah, look for these chains of... So let's let's uh, touch on the, what, what do we, you know, the, the legacy of candles and where this work fits in. Yeah. With candles, people saw these pickles, they weren't quite sure what to make of it. Some people believed it, some people just didn't talk about it. Yeah. Now we have Sears, JWST, essentially supporting that thanks to your work, Yeah. Um, but also revealing these unusual trends. I think, was this banana trend was presumably not known before with candles, right? The fact that you get the more high, more extreme aspect ratios with larger sizes. I yeah. presume that was not So Haowen Zhang wrote a paper in 2019 using Candle's data suggesting this. And so he's my second author on this okay. paper. So we collaborated on this. Um, but even then, I mean, yeah, that was that was a, an extension of the earlier Candle's work by Arjen Vanderwell, which um, people still didn't really, I think, didn't know what to make of it. Okay. Uh, so people now, you think the community is coming around to it now because JWST is just so much more precise that yeah. it's hard to argue now at this point with the data. What's yeah. been the community reaction? Yeah, so I think it's um, it's predominantly positive. People are interested. There's definitely been um, a few instances where um, some people are still concerned about the surface brightness detection bias mm -hmm. um, or the fact that you know these early galaxies like the early universe, not only is it everything else I said earlier, it's also messy. Mm. Things are just undergoing mergers more frequently. And so if you have 
like how much of these elongated structures can you explain as just arising from mergers? Right. Um, not necessarily kind of telling us anything about the mergers happening along, you know, preferred direction via filaments and dark matter and cosmology, but it's just you have things smashing into each other. You have tidal mm-hmm. debris, and then in projection, you might see that always, you know, relatively be um, uh, elongated. Yeah. So, but I think people are starting to, you know, I've been giving talks about this. I was traveling so much last fall. I just gave the Harvard colloquium mm-hmm. last week, thanks to invitation by Avi Loeb, who initially also expressed some skepticism, but but also has had a amazing number of beautiful ideas that we've discussed for you know ways to follow this up. Mm. So people are interested. Um, people, I think, want to know the solution to this thirty-year-old puzzle. You know that was first kind of revealed and hinted at with the proto Hubble deep fields um, and now James Webb is just and Sears isn't even the deepest survey that we already have from you know there's other surveys I've talked to people that are part of the Jades collaboration which is um, another survey like Sears with JWST with JWST okay. that goes even deeper hmm. and I haven't had any indication from people telling me that oh actually if we go deeper with Jades we do start to see the disks around the the pickle shaped things yeah yeah um, so, so then there'd be the bars almost, if that was exactly, true. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but even if, yeah, even if, if you see the disk, whether it's a disk of gas or stars, there's still something very strange because typically the bars and local disks, they're not the majority of the light or the, the mass. It's usually much less than 50%. But here it's like the underlying disk would have to be so faint or so large that it starts to become just as exotic as just saying these things are just pickles. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like we may have to revise our canonical theories of galaxy formation to not just think of these things as isolated pools of gas, as we've been sort of thinking in Laplace thought about it, yeah. but really embedded within this web of yeah. dark matter that really that's that's the cause of this initial 1D structure. And then it is just fascinating that you go from 1D to 2D yeah. to 3D. Yeah. There's something, it seems like the universe is telling us something there. Yeah, the yeah. Chronology. And there's, there'll be lots of, you know, things. So we're thinking about ways to follow this up. So one thing that still we don't know, right, is for individual galaxies at these early times, like Milky Way progenitors that look like, you know, linear structures, mm. for any individual one, we can't say with definitive certainty that, okay, this thing is an edge-on circular disk, this thing is an edge-on oval disk, or this thing is a pickle. Yeah. The way to tell that is actually to go in and get spectroscopy, very deep spectroscopy, and which then lets you constrain the orbits of the stars. Because nature has given us a way, I think, of distinguishing between these three scenarios, and that is that if it's an edge-on circular disk, which is the safe hypothesis, mm. then the stars are going to be on circular orbits, roughly. Mm-hmm. So you should see, you know, one side is going to be blue shifted, one side will be red shifted in the rotation. You see a rotation curve. Yeah. But that's literally impossible if if these things are highly elongated. Yeah. Because then the stars can't be on circular orbits. They have to be on a highly elliptical orbits. Yeah, they're not moving back and forth towards you. They're exactly. just moving left and right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so therefore there'll be no Doppler shift exactly. towards your perspective. And so actually there's already a hint of this with one detection, people call it another food item, the hot dog galaxy. <laughs> yeah, so there's a paper from 2009 by one of my former mentors, David Koo, along with James Lowenthal. Um, 
and they actually like you, they take one of these galaxies that look like a an edge on thing it looks like an edge on disc mm. it's one of the brighter bigger ones they put a, a slit on it like a spectrograph slit and then they ask well they go really deep they use the, the keck telescope to go really deep and they were able to detect the spectrum the continuum from the starlight mm. and then absorption lines in it in that continuum because of this from the stars in that galaxy and then they they just they just ask along the major axis do you see the doppler shift red shift and blue shift on on opposite sides no signature of that. Mm. wow and so the they concluded this might be this is not a edge on disk with order rotation this might be a truly linear filamentary source that is maybe expanding or collapsing perpendicular to the line of sight wow. um, and so what i'm doing now what i want to do with some of my collaborators including david Koo and sandy faber and, and, and joel and others is do a proper census of these things with archival Keck data, Magellan data, um, maybe Hubble data. And then I want to start to think about having a large program. P maybe you know, take what I've learned from Steve, for example, and maybe mm. try to PI a large program to get spectra of a lot of these things and take a proper census, how many to maybe you know somewhat fainter limits, smaller sizes, look like disks, edge on, but they're not because you don't see the rotation. Yeah. And if we can do that, then I think we can be more confident when we say, well, we might need to really, you know, think about changing our standard picture of galaxies starting out as disks, merging to form ellipticals, and start to ask this question, well, where do the disks come from in the first place? Yeah. And how do you go from these 1D pickles to these 2D disks? It's amazing how complicated these galaxies have turned out to be. And yeah. I guess what's fun is ju it's just fun to be in a time when the textbook is being rewritten. And yeah. it, it, somehow science is always more interesting when yeah. things are being ripped up and, and, yeah. and started anew. Yeah. And you'll think, you know, in a hundred years, people will look back and think, wow, that was the period when they really like... For the first time, they realized the fallacy of that yeah. crazy nebula hypothesis, and they yeah. actually figured out what was yeah. going on. And luckily, we're in the time also where we're only 10-ish years away from also a revolution in technology with the 30-meter class of telescopes. Yeah. So those are going to be able to do this kind of, you know, get these measurements that I'm talking about, like capture the velocity mm -hmm. field of the stars, not just of the gas, across the face of these galaxies. It's, it's going to be, cool. I wish it was going to happen tomorrow, but... Yeah, I'll have to well, wait 10 years. Not too far. At least it's yeah. in our career path. Yeah. yeah. And the the last thing I wanted to sort of touch on with this scientifically was the was the dark matter aspect. Yeah. So if we think dark matter is guiding the shapes of these pickles, the shapes of these galaxies, um, can we flip that around and use that to learn anything about the dark matter? And yeah. in particular, you know, there's you know a couple of ideas about what dark matter might really be of course no one has a sample of it in a test tube anyway unfortunately yeah trying to but we don't have anything yet um and so one idea is that it's just this cold dark matter like a wimp like particle often called like a very heavy particle mm -hmm. um but another idea is that it's uh that it's fuzzy and it's this axions they're sometimes called axionic dark matter which is almost like a wave and it, it it's uh you know behaves a little bit differently to the to the clumpiness of cold dark matter mm. so does this uh does, does the existence of these pickles tell us anything about which model might be correct or or all better still on the table with that <clears throat> yeah that's a really good question so uh i think we would all wish it told us something about the nature of dark matter 
because that's like that's a fundamental physics question and we want to try to use galaxies to get a handle on fundamental physics mm. um the problem is that what we observe are the galaxies and the galaxies are the result of very complicated you know these baryonic processes like how gas cools and accretes gets blown out because stars explode and black holes form and so on mm -hmm. and and understanding that is crucial to interpreting what we observe you know in like jwst uh observations and i don't think we understand that well enough yet but suppose we did understand that well enough um then the connection to dark matter is interesting and i've talked to people about this people that work on alternative dark matter models because there are many issues with cold dark matter right so one of the motivations for trying out like you know warm dark matter that's slightly faster mm -hmm. moving or lighter or axionic dark matter or self-interacting dark matter where the dark matter can actually undergo some self you know uh, collisions mm. uh, is because like we have all these puzzles such as nearby cold dark matter predicts many more small mass galaxies than are observed like around the milky way for example or cold dark matter predicts that as you um, go towards the center of any individual galaxy, the density profile should continue to rise and rise and rise. Whereas observe, what the observations show is that actually the density profile flattens off. Yeah. A core is in yeah. the center of many galaxies. Um, and this could be a new puzzle. This could be, you know, there's pickles in the early universe. Can you form pickles in a cold dark matter paradigm? Mm -hmm. So current indications are you can form pickles. I mentioned the simulations by Joel Premack, Avishai Dekel, Daniel Severino, and collaborators, mm -hmm. um, where they're very high resolution simulations. It's a standard Lambda CDM cosmology with very mm -hmm. reasonable prescriptions for the baryonic physics. And this is where the story comes from, that these galaxies that are pickle-shaped, they live in pickle-shaped halos that are then in filaments and mergers are going along one direction, which stabilizes their, their pickle shape. Okay. Um, but what we don't have yet, okay, what we don't have yet is larger volume simulations that can resolve down to the scales of these small mass, small size, distant early universe galaxies. Because what I really want is statistics. Hmm. You know, in a cold dark matter paradigm with reasonable variations on baryonic physics, maybe, how many of these things do you expect? pickle-shaped galaxies in the early universe. Mm. You know, our observations with JWST, they suggest that the majority, 50 to 80% of Milky Way progenitors at, at in the distant universe may be pickle-shaped in mm. 3D. But in some of the best simulations that we have right now, which don't have the resolution, I think, so it's hard to draw any claims about the baryonic properties of the galaxies, but they predict like pickle shapes of maybe 10 to 20% at most. Um, and so I'm working with a lot of people to think about running higher resolution simulations, uh, you know, within a standard Lambda CDM, reasonable baryonic physics to see, well, under what conditions can these things form? And are they actually found in cosmic web filaments? How are they oriented, you know, to kind of test our mental model? Yeah. Um, and and it'll be exciting, you know, uh, to then think about alternative dark matter simulations. People are doing that, you know, highly respected groups are, are pursuing this, but it's just very hard yeah. to disentangle the galaxy formation physics with the cos 
you know, the, the fundamental physics of cosmology, the nature of dark matter and dark energy okay. and so on. So don't hold your breath for an answer on that just yet. Yeah. But what, you know, maybe just to finish this off, what is the the next thing if people who are following this story and are interested in early galaxy, the yeah. mystery of them, what is the next thing we should be on the lookout for that you're working on or a big team's working on that will hopefully yeah. add some some uh, some new information to this story? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I PI'd a, what we call a legacy proposal. Um, so every year NASA puts out a call for proposals for people that want to do science with James Webb and Hubble and other telescopes. And so I PI'd a large one, a legacy proposal of, with a large team, including Steve and many others. And the idea here is we're going to take all of the data from James Webb that was collected in the first two years, that's going to become public this April. Mm. And we're going to have a much larger sample size of galaxies over many different parts of the sky. And um, we'll try more sophisticated 3D geometry modeling approaches to kind of go back and double check, you know, what we did with Sears. And we'll, we'll come up, we think with candidates, these these elongated pickle-shaped candidates uh, that we can then uh, pursue follow-up spectroscopy on. So I think the, the next big thing people should look out for is results from spectroscopy. So what is the velocity structure of the mm. gas in these pickle-shaped candidates? And uh, we hope also some first constraints on what are the orbits of the stars in some of these things. Because uh, that'll you, finally tell us whether they truly are Because that will tell pickles. us for yeah. any individual system on a case-by-case basis, smoking gun. Like, okay, this thing looks like an edge-on disk, but there's no rotation of the stars. So it's not. And now we have to then make the case for getting other kinds of data, maybe looking for second order effects. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like a duck, but you want to see if it quacks like a duck. Exactly. And now we've yeah. We've got a yeah. duck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. Raj, this is very exciting research and thank you for coming on and telling us about it. Maybe we'll have you on in the future when you have some more results for us because this story is obviously one of those ones that's that's evolving and in yeah. play and yeah. uh, maybe next time you're in the front of the New York Times, <laughs> yeah. you'll, be, you'll be here again. I don't know. But this is an amazing that I guess amazing that the public are so engaged with it as well and yeah. I hope uh, those listening enjoyed this so thank you for joining me today yeah thank you so much David So that was my conversation with Dr. Viraj Pandya. I hope you enjoyed it. I know for me, what I really enjoyed and took away from that conversation was the sense of excitement and revolution that we are still in. It sometimes is a little bit deflating, quite frankly, when you look through science textbooks and you learn about how the world works, the universe works, how galaxies are made, stars are made, and it kind of seems like we've figured it all out. And so when you come across something like this that just totally rips up the textbook and says, no, 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 go back to you know the chalkboard and figure things out right from the beginning again, it's invigorating, it's exciting, and especially if you're someone just starting your science journey, a research journey, these are the kind of fields that I think you would be drawn towards, these big open questions that are just revolutionizing and challenging our canonical views of galaxy formation or whatever it is. So I'm certainly very intrigued to see how this story plays out. It's obviously still kind of early days. We had this early data from HST that hinted at these pickle-shaped galaxies, 
JWST seems to be supporting them thus far, but still only the early release data. But we've got 10, 15, maybe even 20 years of JWST to look forward to. So this story will be resolved one way or the other. I'm confident of that. And if these things really are pickle-shaped, then it's we're going to have new textbooks to print, right? And that's, that's incredibly exciting. And I, I suspect it will be true of so much of not just how we understand galaxies, but many of the fields of astrophysics as well. Isn't that amazing that every time we build a new telescope that is an order of magnitude more sensitive than that which we had before, it completely transforms our view of the universe. And everything that we thought we knew turned out was just an approximation or even just a complete fallacy in some cases. It makes you wonder how much of what we currently take for granted as factual, as canonical, as this is true, how much of that will eventually be ripped up in the balance of new information that will come in and show us the that those early thoughts were maybe even childish in terms of how we thought about the universe. And that's kind of exciting. That's kind of exciting to think the story is still being figured out and we are actually a part. We are the architects of that evolving story. So I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did too. If you want to support what we do here on the Cool Worlds podcast, you know, we don't have sponsors, right? This is just this is just me in front of a camera getting a guest on and we're just doing this for, for you guys. There really isn't much other reason for doing this. But if you do want to support what we do, the best way is, of course, you know, do all the subscription and like, share. I mean, that generally does make a big difference. But if you are serious and you want to like, you know, add some, monetary benefit to what we do, then probably the best thing to do is to support my research team, the Cool Worlds Lab. So I'll put a link down in the show notes where you can see how to do that. But the link is coolworldslab.com slash support. That is a way which you can become essentially like a Patreon to not me, not even the development team of these podcasts, but actually my research team. 95% of that money goes just to research. There's a very small 5% credit card fee that the university takes, but 95% of that comes to my research team, which we use to support students, write new papers, do exploration of new ideas. And of course, the more research money that we have in the team means the less time I have to write writing proposals. And so that gives me more time to make these podcasts. So there really is a strong synergy there. And I kind of like the idea of you supporting research rather than uh camera equipment or anything like that. So I think that's the best thing for you to do if you really want to support us. So check that out. That's coolwoodslab.com support. And until the next episode, stay thoughtful and stay curious.